You all welcome uh, to our Wednesday night fellowship. Uh, Welcome back uh, to UVM. Uh, Our hope is that this is a time and place where we can really connect with one another. We can meet new people. We can make new friends. uh, And we can also connect uh, with God, too. Uh, We open up our Bibles every week uh, here at Wednesday night because we believe that God has something to say to us. Something to say to you. Something to say to me. uh, To we, right? All of us here together. The Bible is not just something that God uh, communicated once upon a time, right, a long time ago. It's something that he wants to speak to us today. His word is living. It's active. God speaks because he wants to be known, because he wants to relate with you. And, of course, there's going to be opportunities for us to give an answer. But before we can do that, we need to slow down. And we need to show up. We need to pay attention and listen. The Bible doesn't say everything there is to know about everything. It's not that kind of a book. It's not an encyclopedia. But it does say everything there is to know about who God is, who we are, uh, what's wrong with the world, and what he is doing to write it. Well, this semester we're going to do something that might, I don't know, at first glance seem a little bit crazy. We're going to skip to the very end of the book right, uh, and do a series on the Revelation. Now, I have a, you can maybe call it a bad habit of skipping to the end of stories and reading what comes at the end before I actually get there. When I was reading Harry Potter for the first time and someone told me that somebody special dies at the end of book six, don't worry, I'm not going to give it away. (laughs) But when somebody told me that, I I couldn't help myself. I was like, who was it? And I flipped through the back and I found out (laughs) before I got there. It's not just books. I do this with TV, too. Uh, Over the break, my wife and I were watching, um, you could say we were binge-watching the British Baking Show. And um, when she wasn't looking, I would sometimes scroll through the list of episodes on Netflix trying to peer into those thumbnails and figure out who made it to the finals. Like, is that Raul? Is that Ruby? Is that Peter? Like, I, I had to know. It's true that skipping to the end of a story can maybe spoil it. Uh, At the very least, it eases some of the tension or suspense. You know, that suspenseful British baking show. Some would say it ruins it, because when you let up on the suspense, you let go of the fun. And while I grant that's probably true with things like Harry Potter or the British baking show, there are times in real life, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, We're knowing something about the future or knowing something about the present in a new way doesn't spoil the story, but actually keeps it going. You could even say saves the story. And I want to give you just a couple of of examples of what I mean. One of the best biographies I have ever read is the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. It's been made into a movie. Read the book. It's so much better. Unbroken tells uh, the true life story of a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, Louis Zamperini was an Olympic athlete who later became a World War II fighter pilot. Well, on May 27, 1943, his plane gets shot down over the Pacific Ocean, and he spends 47 days in a life raft at sea. He survives. It's a miracle. But then he gets picked up by the Japanese, and he's thrown into a, uh, a Japanese concentration camp, like a POW camp. 
Well, in the camp, people are dying left and right. There's hunger, there's disease, there's torture. And some people are just dying of despair. They lose hope. But one day, in October of 1944, Zamperini and some of the other POWs spot in the sky an American bomber, a B-29, flying past. What does this mean? Well, it means America is winning the war. That plane in the sky conveys some information, right? The war is coming to an end soon. Was this a spoiler? Right? Like, did seeing that plane spoil, if you want to think of it that way, the POW experience? (laughs) Of course it didn't. Right? It gave them hope. Right? Seeing this plane, in some ways, this symbol in the sky, helped them push through a lot of the pain that they were facing and still would have to face. It wasn't a spoiler. It was a saving thing. Let me give you another story, this one also involving some POWs. In 2010, 16 Colombian soldiers were captured by some rebels. The army, right, uh, they wanted to get in touch with the soldiers who were now being held as prisoners, but they didn't quite know how. And then they had the stroke of genius. The army got some musicians together with some policemen who knew how to type out Morse code. And together they created a catchy pop song called Better Days, performed by Natalia Gutierrez y Angelo. Now, this song, Better Days, was broadcast over 130 small radio stations, and it was listened to by millions, including the Rebel Guards. So while the Rebel Guards are nodding to the beat of Better Days, the POWs discover this Morse code that has been, trans- like, that has been embedded in the song. And after the lyric, listen to this message, brother, right, they pick up the code and they translate it. And it reads, 19 people rescued, you're next, don't lose hope. You see, when we're comfortable and we're safe in our armchair or in our living room reading Harry Potter or watching British baking show on TV or maybe even some horror movie, we don't mind a little bit of suspense and tension now and then. But when it's you in the thick of it, when you are in a stressful situation, when you are in a lot of suffering, I don't think you'd mind that little bit of extra knowledge that could very well save your life. From a biblical perspective, you and I are not unlike Louis Zamperini or those Colombian POWs. From God's perspective, we are living in enemy-occupied territory. Now, yes, God made the world, and yes, there are still traces of its original goodness and beauty and delight. But no, friends, the world is not the way it is supposed to be. It is broken. It's been invaded. And we are, the Bible says, hostages, captives to sin and death and the devil. Which is why we need ransom. We need rescue. We need help. We need hope. We need a revelation. Like Zamperini did. Like those Colombian POWs. We need a symbolic vision. A word from the outside in that exposes we are not alone. We are not forgotten. The war is being won and help is on the way. And in so many words, that is what the last book of the Bible is. This revelation is. It is not given to us to add to our suspense, to freak us out. It's given to us to help us navigate what we are already facing. It is meant to make us wise and to give us hope and to strengthen our faith. 
Before we go on this journey together, we got to name the elephant in the room. You have this thought. I've had this thought. And it's this. Isn't this book crazy? (laughs) Right? Like, why are we going to look at this? I don't know if you've ever had this experience, right? You go into the MoMA, the, the Museum of Modern Art, and you see something on the wall that is just strange. And you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what you're looking for. And so you walk away from the artwork. See, I can do this now, right? <laughs> just thinking, what is that thing? And so that's weird. That's stupid, right? That's dumb. And I think, honestly, I think a lot of us have that same sort of attitude towards this last book of the Bible. We don't know what we're looking at. We don't know what we're looking for. We don't know how to read it. And so we just walk away. Like, that's crazy. Like, that's dumb. I'll be perfectly honest. For a long time, I myself have been intimidated by this book. Right? Not quite sure what to do with it. As a kid, um, I was always scared of our basement. It was dark, unfamiliar, there's lots of unknown. But my problem was, is that's where the soda was. <laughs> right? So, if I wanted a drink of soda... Right? I'd have to open up that door. I'd have to like run inside, open up the fridge, grab the Coke, and then just like come back out. Like eyes shut, like breathing hard. Right? <laughs> if I could be perfectly honest, that is kind of how I treated this book for a long time. Right? Revelation was weird. It's unknown. It's like the basement. It kind of freaked me out. And if I wanted something from Revelation, I'd run in, I'd grab it quickly, maybe like some cool text on the new heavens and new earth, and then I'd run back out. <laughs> Right? Eye shut, big exhale. And it's a shame I did that for so long. Right? Because as I've come to see it, and I'm coming to see it still, this is one of the most exciting books of the Bible. And it's not just that it's exciting, it is incredibly relevant. And hear me, incredibly pastoral. And the fact that you probably don't see it that way just yet, The fact that I haven't seen it that way until recently just goes to show how misunderstood this book is. And I hope that gets cleared up this semester. I hope you're not afraid of it like I was afraid of the basement. Look, if you don't know what kind of literature revelation is, you are going to go off the rails real quick. But if you understand what it is you're reading, things will click into place. It's kind of like going to the eye doctor. right? When you look at something through the wrong lens, it's all blurry. But you have the right lens in front of you. When you see it through the right lens, everything clicks. Everything is clear. So how are we to approach this book? What lens are we to see it through? We are given three very important clues at the start of this letter that answer this question. The very first thing that Revelation is, is a pulling back the curtain. The very first revelation, the very first thing Revelation is, is a pulling back Uh, of the curtain. Where am I getting this? Well, it's the very first word. It's the very first word in this letter. Our word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. And when we hear this word apocalypsis, which is where we get this word apocalypse, we have a very negative reaction, right? I'm I'm falling on my heels here, right? We think of end of the world kind of stuff. 
We think of angry street preachers, even here on our campus. We think of people holding strange signs and holding on to weird conspiracy theories. But that is not at all what this word apocalypse means or is meant to convey. Right? The word apocalypsis simply means unveiling. That's what the word means. It's an unveiling. Uh, revelation, apocalypsis, is taking the cover off of a box. It's pulling back a curtain in a theater. Revelation is opening something up or, more dynamically, breaking through. Every one of us is living in a secular age. We are immersed in a world and a culture that maintains that the only things that are real are the things that you can see and touch. What you see is what you get. That is all there is to it. A philosopher named Charles Taylor calls this disenchantment. A disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presences, of spirits and God and transcendence. In a disenchanted world, we no longer live in a cosmos, but a universe. A cold, hostile, lonely place whose existence is ultimately an accident and where humanity is ultimately meaningless and destined for the trash heap. But what we are going to be looking at all semester long is an affront to that way of thinking. The world is not always what it seems. There is more than meets the eye. There are invisible realities. Let's say you and I go to a river. As we look at the river side by side, I tell you, there are strange, fantastical creatures inside that that you've never seen before. You don't believe me. You stare at the river. You don't see anything. It seems empty. If you see anything, maybe it's in a soft patch of water and you're just seeing your reflection kicked back up at yourself and you think I'm crazy. But then I put a rod in your hand and I say, cast right there and sure enough, the line goes tight and you reel it in and you bring to hand a beautiful hand-painted brook trout. Now, what has just happened? The fishing line is acting as a portal, as it were, into a new kind of world, a, a real world where mysterious creatures like brook trout right, live. But that world is largely unseen to you. You can't see it with the naked eye, but it exists. And Revelation is like that for us. It is a portal. It is a fishing line into a world that is right there. It's, it's there as sure as the brook trout is in that river. But you've got to know how to access it. If Revelation is this portal or this pulling back the curtain, what it primarily offers us is not predictions about the future, but a whole new perspective, a new way of looking at our present. If Revelation is this portal, right, this pulling back the curtain, we are the trout being pulled out of the water, being brought to hand and exposed to a whole new world, right, right above the surface, right? Can you imagine, right, a trout being lifted out of the water? You're like, what is this, <laughs> right? All he knows 
is swimming against the current, eating bugs and making babies. But now he's exposed to this whole new thing. It's kind of like what Revelation offers us. That's the first thing I want you to see about this book. It's an apocalypsis. It's a pulling back the curtain. The second thing I want you to see is that it is poetic. It's poetic. What God gives us in the Revelation is a bunch of symbols. Word pictures, metaphors. A son of man standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Okay. A lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Okay. A woman clothed with the sun, giving birth to a child. A holy city coming down from heaven as a bride. Lots of metaphors, lots of symbols. Now, when we ignore the use of symbols and we read this literally, what we end up with is literature that reads a lot like a sci-fi alien invasion story. It's just weird. It's nonsensical. But Revelation, it's, it, it's, a, it's poetic. It's symbols. It's symbolized communication. Well, why did God choose to communicate this revelation this way? I mean, why doesn't God speak plainly? There's lots of ways to answer this, but I, you ought to think this through yourselves. Why do people use memes? Like, why do you use emojis? Why does the command, don't do drugs, sound stale? But when you show a guy cracking an egg in a skillet and you say, this is your brain on drugs, people are like, I don't want to do it. Like, what is, what's up with that? Imagery has the power to go deeper than words. Right? Images can quickly and effectively convey what we struggle right, to put into words. And images have the ability to go past the intellect and to touch our emotions and our imaginations Right? They, they can change the way that we see and hear and feel right? reality. That's why God communicates this, this way. See, Revelation is full of images and symbols. And while some of these images might seem strange to our ears and to our eyes, to the, to the original audience, it was readily accessible. They readily recognized it. And in a lot of ways, these word pictures, symbols, and revelation are similar to our political cartoons. I've picked out three, just to give you a little feeling for what I'm talking about from like the latest, uh, from the week. These are recent political cartoons. Okay? This is what this might sound like in Revelation. I saw a bird with the face of a woman coming out of a clock. They didn't have clocks, but coming out of this device, right? Well, we know what this is, right? We can recognize... This cartoon says Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's coming out of a cuckoo clock saying coo, coo, coo. It's all C-O-U-P, right? This makes sense to us, right? Let's do another one. Here, we've got a picture of a man, a fireman, and there's a donkey. I saw a donkey holding a hose, putting a fire out, right? Uh, there's burning. It's burning, and there's people inside. Well, what is he holding? He's holding a hose. He wants to connect it to a hydrant. It says filibuster. The meaning of this, right, is that if they break the filibuster, the donkey, the Democrats are going to be able to bring relief to people who are hurting. Right? 
This would not make sense at first glance to somebody maybe in the first century, but it makes a whole lot of sense to us in the 21st. You catch my drift? Let's do one more. Right? I saw an elephant in a suit cowering in the shadow of a man. Right? That makes no sense literally, but we all know that this elephant represents the GOP. Right? And who they're afraid of is still the shadow of Trump. Right? Again, we use this stuff all the time. You see it, and I, I hardly have to explain it to you. This communicates a lot of information without any words, right? Or uh, sparse, you know, use of words. And the same thing is true uh, of the revelation, okay? We make sense of this stuff seamlessly. The people who first received this letter were able to do the exact same thing. The trick for us is to figure out what those symbols meant, right, for them. And then we can figure out what it would mean for us. That might sound a little tricky. It's also a little bit fun, but that's what we're going to be doing, right? God is communicating stuff to us through symbols. Last point, real quick. The last thing that we see from this introduction is that Revelation is a letter. You see this in verse 4. It's apocalypsis. It's poetic, symbolic communication, and it's a letter. It's It's a pastoral letter. John, who wrote this, was a friend and disciple of Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote some other letters. And then he writes this one, right, from exile. And he's writing to seven churches, and he's writing to these churches as a pastor. He is speaking to their issues. He's addressing their concerns. He's talking about the challenges that they are facing and the questions that they are asking. If God is in control, why is there so much evil and suffering and injustice? If God is in control, why does the world seem to be ruled by evil and not God? Like, where is he? And where is this kingdom of God that Jesus said is said to have brought, to have inaugurated? Where is it? Because I don't see much of it. Is following Jesus worth it? See, John is writing this letter to them and, and answering those things. God is in, uh, writing, as it were, a letter to them and answering those things. And it's a letter to seven specific churches. But as you'll realize as we spend this semester together, you'll realize that seven is John's favorite number. You know, it's full of significance. It, it, it conveys completeness and wholeness. What we have here is not just a letter to seven churches, but to all of the churches. This is a letter to the church universal in all times and all places. You see, it speaks to the issues and doubts and fears of first century Christians, but it also speaks to the issues, doubts, and fears of 21st century Christians as well. In sum, what we have is a down-to-earth manual describing what it means to live the Christian life between the D-Day of Jesus' first coming and the V-E day of his second. How do we keep the faith in this in-between time? That is what this book is about. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised by how relevant and contemporary this book is. We are just over one month into a year that people are already saying is 2020 just with bangs. Right. So many of the things that made 2020 so hard are following us into this new year. 
I just want you to forget all of those things that grab the headlines for a moment and to think about what it's like to be a college student at UVM. In a non-pandemic year, right, in a good year, you would be navigating pressures to conform, pressures to fit in, conflicts at home, conflicts with your friends, the ubiquity of drugs and alcohol, uh, of drugs and alcohol, the ubiquity of mind-numbing technology and pornography, the temptation to hook up, maybe an addiction, maybe an eating disorder, maybe anxiety, depression, and most certainly loneliness. And this is a good year, and this is not all, right? All of this is taking place in a culture that says that there uh, is nothing beyond what you can see. That this is all that there is. So you had better get used to it. And you better get what you can now. Because there's no second chance. There is no God. There is no hope. And no help is on the way. Again, that's a good year on planet Earth. Do you see why it makes sense for us to have to jump to the end of this book, right? Why this is not a spoiler, but something that can actually save. I hope that you do. And I hope that you go on this journey with me, right? And with us as RUF. We're going to meet here at the same time, same place every week, right? And uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, next time uh, in Revelation 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Uh, thank you for speaking, for, and speaking in a way that really does grab our attention. And I pray, Lord, you would hold it. I pray you would make us patient with things that are hard to understand uh, at first. Um, but that uh, as we persevere uh, with this book and, and with you, that you would give us wisdom, you would give us hope, you would strengthen our faith. A faith that sees us through, right? Sees us through your perspective, sees us through the the thick and the thins, uh, the ups and downs of our lives, and really sees us through uh, to the end, uh, to the finish line. I pray that for all here. I pray it for our friends who aren't, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.